Good morning. My name is uh, Kenny Cluett. I almost forgot my name there for a second. Um, I'm an associate pastor of Extension Ministries here, or what is, is also known as a, the Global Fellow. It's a real cool title that I like throwing around. Um, but, but what that means, if, if you're new here, this church um, has glimpsed or has captured a glimpse of a vision of a church that goes beyond its city, that goes beyond its country, and that goes into other nations. Um, and not, not as something like, hey, we're going to invade other nations and be an empire of the church, but rather saying, the church is everywhere. How can we support what God's doing all around? And, and one of the ways they do that, in addition, or we do that, in addition to planting churches and investing in partners is also training young leaders um, and young pastors, both for the United States and abroad. And I'm a product of that. So I wanted to thank you for that and also just recognize what God is doing in this church. He's giving us a glimpse of something bigger than ourselves. That's a good thing. Um, so this morning, I have the privilege of launching you off in a new series again. You, some of you may have remembered, I was here a few weeks ago, I launched you off in the Luke series, that's over now, and the launcher comes back. So the good thing, the good thing is, for the next 25 weeks, there's no more launches. See, notice how I did that? I made it sound like short. Um, no, we're actually going to work through the book of 1 Corinthians, and it may sound like a long time, but this book is heavy. It has a lot of stuff. I mean, we're going to talk about stuff that you wish we had never talked about in church. Trust me. Um, I know. And so, um, th- th- this, but this morning we're going to launch, launch this series, and I just want to introduce you a little bit to this book. So really what it is, it's, it's an ancient letter written by the Apostle Paul um, to a church in a, in a cosmopolitan, thriving, really, really cool city called Corinth. It's probably written around the year 55. Um, and what, what had happened is Paul had spent some time in this city, and this was a young city that had been kind of recently rebuilt, and it was attracting tons of talent. So it was attracting young entrepreneurs, business leaders, um, art. There, there were a lot of athletes there too. They had something kind of like the Olympic Games every two years. So they, they were attracting all this talent, and Paul came as well, and he said, you know what, I'm going to build tents during the day and preach during the night. So he did this for a few years, developed some really good relationship, preached to a bunch of people, and a church grew out of that. And when Paul felt, you know, this church is, is doing okay, he left. He left some people in charge, some other apostles and people had come to visit. And he moved on to Ephesus, which is another city, um, also a pretty cool, thriving city. But there in Ephesus, he gets a letter or someone visits him. He, he finds out somehow that something's amiss in the church in Corinth. Um, he, the, the way he puts it, we, we heard it this morning in verse 11. He says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers and sisters. It almost sounds like a mafia group, doesn't it? Chloe's people, you know, they told me. That. <laughs> I, won't, I won't go there. But, um, but he, he hears something, right? So d- d- despite this image that the church had, despite the growth, all the beauty that was happening in Corinth, Paul says, something's wrong, and I know it, and we're going to talk about this today. And he immediately gets into it in his letter. So um, th- th- this church apparently had put on a front it, it was a beautiful church. It had, it had a lot of beautiful stuff going for it. But behind that front or under the rug of the church, there's a mess. And Paul says, we need to deal with this. Um, recently, I heard a song by Melanie Martinez called Dollhouse. It's kind of a strange song, beautifully strange or strangely beautiful, depending what side you are. Um, but it captures this kind of disturbing picture. It's called Dollhouse, and it's talking about this dollhouse we live in. And she says in the, in the chorus, Places, places, get in your places. 
Throw on your dress and put on your doll faces. Everyone thinks that we're perfect. Please don't let them look through the curtains. Please don't let them look through the curtains. So apparently pretending to be something great on the outside and having a mess under you isn't just a problem or wasn't just a problem 2,000 years ago. Apparently this is our problem too, isn't it? And, and, and you know this, right? Maybe you're a visitor here. Maybe you've been here for a while. You come in in the morning after a, probably a difficult drive or at least having to scrape some ice off your car this morning and you see all these people so nicely dressed. They smell pretty okay, I'm hoping. Um, and they're smiling. They have their kids running around. Everything seems so organized. They're hugging each other. They're talking to people. And maybe you're sitting thinking, I wonder if I'll ever have my life as put together as they seem to have it. I wonder if I'll ever be able to belong to this place completely because everyone just seems to be okay, to be doing well. Or maybe you've met a few Christians over the years and you've kind of seen a bit under that surface and you've said, you know, I don't know if I trust this community. People are just too happy. They're just hugging each other too much. <laughs> That's how, by the way, just a side note, the step aside, Non-Americans, when they come here, that's how we feel about white Americans. They're all happy and smile. And so sometimes when you do that, we just feel really afraid for a second. But it, it just takes us a second to warm up. But no, I'm stepping back. Sorry, I was just... <laughs> but we do. We feel this sometimes, right? We feel, I wonder if what's going on on the surface isn't really what's underneath. And, and here, let, let, me, let me tell you something. I want to share a little secret with you this morning. The rumors are true. Christians are hypocrites. That's right. Just like the Corinthians in the first century, like the world around us, we also try to hide our true selves behind these radiant images of who we want to be, don't we? And honestly, I wonder how much energy I spend every day trying to maintain an image. I mean, that, and that's the thing about it too, isn't it? Living in this dollhouse that Melanie Martinez describes, it's tiring, isn't it? You get to a point where you're, it's hard to hold on and you almost hope, I almost hope that someone would just pull this curtain away and free me to be who I truly am, but, but I almost hope that because I know it's gonna be really painful and I'm not sure I want it. But this is exactly what Paul's doing in this letter. He's writing to the Corinthians and pulling off the curtains from their dollhouse, saying, look, there's a mess in here. Who do you think you're kidding? Who are you trying to kid? And this is the message that this morning I want us to deal with as a church. Church, who are we trying to kid? with our image, with what we're trying to live out. Sorry, with what we're trying to display. And so the way Paul gets at this question with this church is, is kind of, he, he kind of does a spot the differences exercise and he draws two pictures and contrasts them. First picture that he draws is of this beautiful church that God's created, that God's called into being. He draws this church and then he compares it to the mess that the Corinthians are trying to sweep under the rug. He tries the church and the mess, and then, he, and then he brings them together and says, what do we do about this? Who are we trying to kid? So this morning, I'd like us to look at those two pictures. I'd like us to look at the church as God's created it to be, and then to look at this mess, and then to try to figure out how do we respond to that? What can we do as a church? Um, so first, the church. If you haven't done so already, would you go ahead and open your Bibles um, to 1 Corinthians um, chapter 1. The first thing Paul does in these first nine verses, Paul's pretending, he's using the format of kind of a typical Greco-Roman introduction for a letter, where he says, hi, this is Paul, I'm here writing with my friend Sosthenes, who you know, we're writing this letter to you, but Paul does something a little distinct here. He describes who the Corinthians um, are, or he describes what the church is 
what, what they're supposed to be, what they're called into. And we see this church, we see this image of the church, and there's kind of three characteristics that I want to point out to you, three traits of this church that Paul describes in the first nine verses. So the first thing we see um, about this church is that it's a global and truly united community. It's a global and truly united community. Notice the language in verse 2. He doesn't say to the church of Corinth, does he? Or to the church of the Corinthians or to the Corinthian church. What does he say? He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Jesus Christ, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So he says, to the church of God in Corinth, he's saying, guys, you're part of something so much greater than you think. You're part of something so much greater than you think. You see, Paul had been traveling around the world, around the known world at that point, and he had seen the gospel just spread like wildfire. And he had seen not only the gospel spread, but he had seen these people that were cultural enemies coming together and reconciling, right? He had seen Romans and Greeks coming together. He had seen Jews and Gentiles, slaves and masters all coming together, all sitting under the same master, Jesus, all putting their differences aside. And Paul's saying, look, you're part of a community that goes way beyond your city. You're part of a community that goes way beyond Leewood, way beyond Kansas City. This is something huge that God is doing. It doesn't belong to you. God has started this. Paul says to the Corinthians, this amazing community, this is what you've been made members of. You're part of something so much greater than you think. And let me just say this this morning to us. We, we need to understand this as we think of church as well, don't we? We're, we're part of something. We're not just part of an American expression or, or, or a European expression or any kind of expression of a church. We're, we're part of something so much larger with thousands of years of history coming from a small community of Jews that started reaching out to others and people were reconciled and people started joining together and it's even reached us 2,000 years later in a continent that we didn't even know existed back then. We're part of something so much greater than we could ever think. It's the first characteristic. The second thing Paul points out is that this community isn't just normal people, but it's people that have been given incredible gifts and incredible benefits. Look at this in verse two, the language that he uses. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, he says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are people that are sanctified. They've been made perfect. They've been given a holy status. They no longer have to earn their place in the world or before God. And you see, they're not just holy either. They're rich. Look at this in verses four to seven. It says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way, listen to what he says, you were enriched, you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that what, you are not lacking in any gift. You're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're enriched in all ways, especially those two values that were really important to their society, speech and knowledge. It says, God's enriched you with this. He's given you the gift. We sung it this morning. said, all I need is Christ. I don't need anything else besides Christ. And that's what Paul is saying to this community. You have all you need. You've been made incredibly rich. You don't need anything else. In addition to being sanctified and enriched, these people had a promise that this was gonna last. 
You see that in verses eight and nine. He says, our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. They had a promise to be sustained to the end, to be kept guiltless until the final day. No more regret, no shame, no guilt until the very end. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine living like that? I mean, this is an amazing community, isn't it? Global community, reconciled, coming together, totally unified, holy, rich, blameless, with a promise to keep to the end. Like, who wouldn't want to form part of this community? So so, so we ask, how did the Corinthians get into this deal? (laughs) What did they do? What did they do to get to get to be part of this community? Because it's a pretty sweet deal. And, and we see it here, don't we? When you read this carefully, we see exactly what the Corinthians are doing to get into this. You see it there. They did absolutely nothing. <laughs> nothing. There's nothing the Corinthians did. They were called by God. That's because this church, this community that Paul's describing is all about Christ. It's all God through Christ. Think about it. They're sanctified because of him. They're called together through him. They receive his grace and peace, right? Not Paul's even, it's, it's Christ's grace and peace. Christ is the one receiving praise for them and their work. His testimony is confirmed among them. He's the one sustaining them to the end. To sum it up, let's look at verse nine. See what it says there? It says, you Corinthians have been faithful. No, what does it say? It says, God is faithful. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is faithful. He's the one that starts the church, that sustains it, that completes the work within it. It's all about by and through Christ. It all depends on him. So can you imagine what this community would be like and you, you see, John Lennon sung uh, a while ago a, a song, right? He said, imagine there's no heaven. But what Paul's doing here is saying, imagine there is a heaven and it's here and it's with us. And in fact, Paul isn't saying, imagine there's a heaven. Paul's saying, there is this heaven. This is real. This is a reality that God's done and you are part of it. You're called to it. He's not saying someday you may achieve this. No, he's saying, this is you. God has done this for you. I mean, what an amazing community. What an amazing story. And you see, this was the fulfillment of, of all the promises of the Old Testament, that all communities, that all people were going to come together and be sanctified and sit in God's presence and worship Him. And the thing is, it's not just the Old Testament that's fulfilling, is it? All our cultures, we have this notion of peace that we sing about in our songs, that we write about in our poems, that we tell about in our myths. Everyone wants this peace. Everyone wants this community. So you ask, okay, Paul, this sounds great, but we've heard a little bit about the Corinthians. What? I mean, they clearly weren't that community. What are you trying to say? Is Paul lying? Is Paul just being really ironic and kind of mean? Or is this just a platitude, a typical form of writing? Well, I don't think so. He's not lying to them. He is using a little bit of irony, and we'll see that throughout the weeks. But what he's doing is he's presenting this picture of who the Corinthians really are. He's saying, this is what God has done, and this is what you're invited into. Don't forget that. 
Don't forget what you're called to. Don't forget what the end is. This is the picture of the church that God had called the Corinthians to be. And as Paul's painting this, he now turns to the other picture and says, and this thing that you've become, who are you trying to kid? Who are you trying to kid? So next to this picture of the church, Paul paints a picture of the mess, right? The mess of, of, of the Corinthians. And I'm not gonna get too much into it today because we're gonna have 25 weeks to work through their mess. Um, it'll be great, I promise. Because um, I won't be preaching on it. No, it, it, it will be good. Um, but, but what he does here, Paul introduces kind of this mess in, in verses 10 to 16, and he, and he just presents this picture, right, of all these people fighting over who's their pastor. And it gets really absurd. I mean, imagine this. People are saying, you know, I'm pastored by Tom. Tom Tom's kind of my guy. And someone else is saying, well, I sort of like Andrew Jones. He appeals more to me. He's more of my pastor. And then a third person saying, well, I've, I've known Alan Mercer for 25 years. He's my pastor. And then you get the spiritual types, right, that come in and say, well, I'm pastored by Jesus. That's right. He's my buddy, my homeboy. Um, right? it, it's ridiculous. We laugh because it is ridiculous, but that's how ridiculous we get sometimes as Christians, don't we? You see, rather than absolute unity in Christ like this first picture, the Corinthians had imported their age's partisan spirit, and they're tearing apart. They're tearing the church apart over allegiances to human leaders rather than Christ. And you see, Paul shows them how ridiculous this is, doesn't he? He says, can you tear apart Christ? Did I die for you? Is that what I did for you? Did I baptize? Were you baptized into my name? And then Paul kind of like, I didn't even baptize you. Well, okay, maybe I baptized a couple of you. But th that's not the point. I didn't, I didn't do anything for you that would change your life. He's saying, there's only one leader. There's only one Christ. But you see, this, this part of the mess, this is only the tip of the iceberg that we're going to see. see. In the upcoming weeks, we're going to see that some people are having sex with prostitutes in the church. Other people are telling people not to have sex as married couples. You wonder if it's the same people. Um, People are taking each other to court in bitter lawsuits. Some are still worshiping idols in terrible ways. Others are using the gifts that God has given them to promote themselves. It's terrible. And probably worst of all, at the Lord's Supper, people are coming and, and some people are eating and drinking the wine and getting drunk at the Lord's Supper and not leaving anything for the rest. This community is a mess. This community is a mess. So it begs the question, doesn't it? What does the church in Corinth that we're seeing here have to do with this beautiful picture of the church that Paul painted in verses one to nine. And that's exactly the question that Paul wants us to ask. You see, here's the thing. The biggest problem at the church at Corinth isn't their problems. Churches will always have problems. The church having problems isn't the problem. The problem is not taking those problems seriously. You see, they don't even see their problems. The Corinthians thought they had arrived, that they already were the church in all its beauty, right? And by doing that, they had conformed to the mess instead of the beauty. They thought this was the best they could hope for, a life full of insecurities, full of isolation. They thought this was all there was and that they had reached it. But God is too faithful to let them wallow. God is faithful. So what does he do? He inspires Paul to write them with tears in his eyes. Guys, who are you trying to kid? Don't conform to this plastic reality. There's so much more for you. 
And look, in, in chapter four, look how he puts this in verse 14. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Verse 21, he says, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? He's saying, stop wasting your time on pretending you're okay. Let's deal with this, brothers and sisters, children. Who are we trying to kid? So what about us? What about us as Christ community? Are we really as bad as the Corinthians? I mean, some of you may be thinking, is Kenny just about to spill out some juicy rumors about the staff that we haven't heard about? And no, we keep our front much better than the Corinthians. <laughs> no, honestly, we, we, we don't deal with exactly the same problem as the Corinthians, perhaps. Although, I think we're going to be very surprised at how relevant this book is. But here's my fear, that we could easily become like them and much more quickly than we imagine. We can become self-assured and comfortable, complacent in our problems until we stop seeing them and mistake the real church for this fake church, for this second-rate reality. So how do we avoid this? Well, there's three things that I want to throw out at you in preparation for this series and in preparation just personally this year to think about, Lord, how, how can I prepare myself for you to take out these problems, to show me my problems, to take off the curtain from me? So there's three ways, three things that I just want to propose to you this morning that we start thinking about as we get into this book. So the first thing is stop taking credit for the good in your life. Stop taking credit for the good in your life. See, here's the first thing Paul's saying to the Corinthians. Stop taking credit for what God has done in your life. You see, it's really easy to get in this rhythm of thinking that the good things that have happened to us are because we did something good about it. And what happens with that is we end up starting to think that God owes us something and that the others owe us something as well, don't we? But Paul's saying, look, everything you have, absolutely everything has been given to you by God. And of course, we don't like that, right? We want, we want to have better habits, or just be a little smarter, or a little more studied, or have a little more money than the person next to us so that we can put ourselves above them. But Paul's saying, no, everything you have has been given to you by God. And th so, so maybe you're thinking, okay, okay, that's okay, but, but, but I, you know, I've, I've done some good things. I've helped some people. Really? Are we going to get into good works now? I mean, the gospel sees right through that, doesn't it? It shows us to not mistake our good works for the motivations behind our good works. As, as one person put it once, he says, you know, we're, we're so bad at doing good works, we hardly ever do it, but then every once in a while we will go over to our neighbor and kind of help him back, and then we ruin it all by coming home and patting ourselves on the back, right? That's, that's our story of good works as humanity. And we lit, or the gospel sees right through this. It tears apart our good, look, our good works as it looks at our motivation and shows that we really did it just to pat ourselves on the back. You see, religious people, they take credit for the good in their lives because they've earned it. Religion is a concept, this is what it's all about, it's about earning your salvation, earning something so that God owes you. But gospel people, Jesus people, we know we have nothing but grace. We don't just repent of the bad things we do, do we? We repent even of the good things we do with lousy motives. Everything is grace. Instead of entitlement, gratitude. So stop taking credit for the good things in your life. It's the first thing. Second thing I want to encourage you to do 
daily admit still how far you have to go or daily admit how far you still have to go. You see, when, when, when we look at this picture, the beautiful picture that Paul paints and then the picture of the Corinthians, it's easy for us to say, wow, they're far away from that. But are we doing that with our own lives? Do we have a clear enough image of what God has called us to do and a clear enough image of who we really are to stop every day and say, wow, I still have a way to go. Maybe you take a step and say, wow, I still have a way to go. You say, well, well, how is this a problem for me? Well, let me give you two examples of when we're not doing this. First, when we don't take our sin that seriously. We start saying, you know, I I think I'm okay. I think I can deal with this. I think it's going to work out well. That means we think we've arrived. That means we think we're good enough. Maybe it's not your personal sin, but maybe you're just thinking, you know, I can deal with this, but I don't need anyone else. Let me tell you how dangerous that is. You see, the Christian life is kind of like a journey. Um, I don't know if any of you went to see The Hobbit over the holidays. I did. It's pretty good. Um, Actually, I really liked it. But The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, maybe The Wizard of Oz, these these are great metaphors for what the Christian life looks like. And notice there's not one hero that just goes on this journey. There's a number of people. They get together they look at the map together, right? And they try to figure out, hey, I'm, I'm reading this in the map. Can you help me read this? Can you help me understand how this affects me? They walk together. They hold each other's hands. They challenge each other. This is what the Christian life is. If you're not part of a Christian body, then you may not be on the right journey because God's called us to come together. So daily, we need to look at this picture where God's calling us to and admit how far we still have to go. And thirdly, and possibly the most difficult, let yourself be loved enough to be rebuked. Let yourself be loved enough to, sorry, let yourself be loved enough to be rebuked. See, as we read through 1 Corinthians in these next 25 weeks, we're gonna run into stuff that's really difficult to handle. It's gonna rub us the wrong way. A lot of stuff's gonna seem out of date or simply strange, but I wanna encourage you to take this seriously, to take God's word seriously, Because who knows, maybe the stuff that offends you the most is God trying to work in you and trying to kind of uncover some of that stuff and pull out this mess to fix it. He loves you enough to hurt you in order to heal you. In fact, let me stress this from a different angle. Don't just let yourself be loved enough to be rebuked. Run towards rebuke. Learn to love rebuke. See, church, if we want to live the real life that God is offering to be really alive, we have to get into the habit of confronting our dead parts and letting God tear them away. We have to get used to being wrong. We have to get used to being okay with not knowing everything and letting someone else tell us what's wrong, letting God speak to us. See, letting go of this curtain that covers us, it's painful, but it's so liberating. It's so worth it. And let me, let me just say something about this point. This, this last week, um, I was really confronted with this, to be honest. Um, and I started thinking, you know, it's been a while since I've sat with someone and just let them hammer me. <laughs> and, and, and part of the reason why it had been a while since we'd had community groups, to be honest, because that's one of the places where I constantly bring stuff that I'm dealing with and have people pray for me. So what I did, I picked up the phone, I called a friend, and I said, look, I'm going to lay my life before you. Beat me up. <laughs> It was the phone, so he wasn't able to. Um, no, but I said, I said, I want you to confront me. I want you to tell me what's going wrong here, and let's pray through this together. And boy, it was hard. It was hard confessing some stuff and some attitudes. 
I mean, re- remembering that you're far away from where you want to be is not fun. If you don't have someone to confess it to, if you don't have someone to work through it that will rebuke you and kind of say, look, this needs to be changed, it's just painful. But when you do have someone, there's pain, but there's also just this liberation of knowing that you're loved and knowing that God's doing something in you. So find some people. Get plugged into a community group. If you're not part of a community group yet, check that box like Andrew said. Plug into a community group and then be willing to share your life. Because we can also go to groups, right, and just be like, oh, we're all happy. No, be willing to take that curtain down and say, look, I'm struggling with this. I need help. I need prayer. Trust that God is working in the people around you. Enough to challenge you. See, church, God is not finished with us yet. And this morning he's saying to us, let me keep working with you. Let me continue to shape you into the church that I've called you to be. He's telling us, you don't have to try to kid anyone anymore. You are the church I've called you to be. You don't have to kid anymore. Be the church I've called you to be. Notice how Paul ends this section. He ends it with a cross. Look with me at verse 17. Let me read this. It says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In other words, when you spend your time trying to show off, trying to show something different, you forget the cross. You empty the cross of its power. And you see, the cross is the only place where there's true transformation. What does this mean? Well, look, the cross represents two things, or it does two things that are vital, they're essential to the core of the gospel. The first thing that the cross does is it confirms our worst fears. Great, Kenny, thank you, that's wonderful. But it does, right? It says you're much worse off than you thought. Cheer up. (laughs) It's much worse than you could ever think. There's nothing you can do about your shame and your guilt. There's nothing you can do towards your bend, towards self-destruction and destroying those around you. You need a savior. That's what the cross says. The cross says Christ came to live the perfect life that you were unable to live, and he came to die the perfect death that you should have died. We needed someone to really live to live so well, Christ lived so well that death couldn't hold him down. We hadn't seen that life before. We needed that. The cross confirms our worst fears. We're much worse off than we ever thought. But on the other hand, the, Christ says, the cross says, you're loved so much more than you ever dared to imagine. Christ loved you so much that he did what you never thought anyone would do for you. He came, he gave up everything. From having everything, he gave it all up to love you. He entered into your dollhouse and he tore down those curtains and he freed you. Martin Luther King said, cross is God's way of saying to a wayward child, I still love you. And if you will see within me the suffering of cross, the suffering Christ on the cross of my power, you will be able to be transformed. You will be redeemed. You see the God of the gospel, Christ on the cross, he doesn't just point to us in judgment, say you evil hypocrites, You'll never change. No. He looks at us and says, you evil hypocrites. I have changed you by making you my own. Come into my home. Sit at my table. Feast with my children. You're now mine. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to keep tricking ourselves into thinking that we don't have problems. We'll continue to keep trying to pull these curtains up. 
But the risen Christ, the living Christ who is still active today, he's going to continue to tear our curtains down out of love for us. There is hope. We no longer have to fool anyone because Christ will make us the church he's called us to be. Thanks be to God. This morning, as we end, I'd like to give us just a moment to think about this. Perhaps a moment to confess for you. Think about the three areas that we talked about. Um, Stop taking credit for all the good things in your life. Remembering how far you still have to go and being open to rebuke. And and I just want to ask you to grab one of those. Sit before God and say, God, help me see your vision more clearly and help me prepare for you to work in my life. So let's do that. We'll just take 30 seconds with our heads bowed and then I'll pray and we'll go into communion. Lord, thank you for calling us into your family through Christ. This morning we acknowledge our need for more of you. Lord, forgive us for taking credit for what you alone have given us, for pretending that we earned our privilege to come before you and to be your ambassadors in the world. We confess that you are the Father of light, the Lord of love, the giver of all good gifts. Father, we admit that we are still far away from what you have called us to be. We've conformed to a plastic reality, but we desire your living reality. Forgive us. Readjust our eyes to be fully fixed on Christ. God, continue to discipline us in your love. We submit to you this morning. To you be all the glory. Amen. So this morning we're going to celebrate communion. And this is the meal Christ left us to remember that center of the gospel, the cross. We have the bread that represents his body that was broken for us and the juice that represents his blood that was shed for us. And as we take it in in, in groups of six to eight people, um, but also with the whole church, we remember that we're part of this body, that we're part of Christ together. Here at Christ Community, you don't have to be a member to partake. Um, Rather, all followers of Jesus who have placed their trust in him alone are invited to the table. If you have yet to embrace Jesus fully, let me encourage you to use this space to think about this message. We're so glad you're here. And I want to challenge you to really consider this vision, to consider whether God is possibly calling you, saying, come into my family, let your curtains down. I want to heal you. And if that's the case and you want to talk more about that, find one of us. Let's talk about it. Um, The the way this works is you'll find there's stations kind of placed around. Find the station nearest to you. You'll go there. You'll gather in groups of six to eight people. You'll take the bread, dip it in the wine, and then together partake. Um, Before we come, let us remember. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, drink 
in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let me invite us to stand and come.